Hello and welcome to RyePod, the arts and entertainment podcast from the Rye Arts Festival. This week, Alison Moncrief Kelly has a chat with the conductor Hilary Davin Wetton, who has had a long and eminent career as a choral and orchestral conductor. Among his many activities, he is currently the musical director of the City of London Choir, associate director of the London Mozart Players, and artistic director of the Military Wives Choirs. He is also a passionate advocate for music education, a topic which accordingly crops up in this interview, as do some amusing anecdotes about his own musical education at Oxford University and the Royal College of Music, where he studied with the great Sir Adrian Bolt. Altogether, Hilary is a great raconteur, and it's a real treat to listen to this honest and engaging potted history of his life in music. It's worth mentioning as well that Alison and Hilary used to be married, which, of course, means she asks all the right questions. It's very interesting looking at the career that you have and indeed have had um, because it seems to me that you're very unusual in that you have done so many different things and are kind of reinventing yourself yet again. I'm not going to mention your age because it would be unladylike, but um, I think we have to admit that it's not perhaps, uh, you know, the first flush of youth. I think the first flush of youth would be very hard to sustain. I must be All right. Well, let's say it's the second flush of youth and that um, you have had probably at least three sorts of careers, haven't you? Well, I think I've been exceptionally lucky and uh, I have been, I think, known to observe previously that if I saw my career advertised, I might very well apply for it. Of course, there are things I wish I had done which I didn't do or things that I did do that in hindsight I, I wish I'd have done without. But by and large, I think I've been exceptionally lucky and I'm not absolutely sure that someone starting out in their 20s now would be able to do that because of the way the world has become so sort of stratified and the way we stick labels on people in a pretty unhelpful way. And you'll remember John Dankworth, you know, who always used to say this, you know, the only way of describing a musician is not by saying he's a jazz musician or a teaching musician or a performing musician or this musician or that musician. He's either a good musician or not a good musician. And I think that's a much more useful definition. And I don't like labels. And I think, you know, it is one of the problems of being a conductor, that if you're known to work uh, a lot with young people, which I not only did do, but I'm very proud to have done, uh, then there's always a slight tendency that they think you're not quite in the first league because you've chosen to do that. But all the musicians we know, I suspect, who are really gifted, have made teaching part of their lives because they want to pass the torch on. Well, also, it's, uh, I would have said, very much in your case, a vocational thing. that You clearly had a very burning desire to, to be an imparter of musical education. Um, and I think one of the interesting things is uh, the numbers of different levels at which you've operated. So um, a, a spectacularly young age to be appointed a director of music uh, at Cranley. I think you were in your 20s, weren't you? I was 23, yes. That's a daunting thought, yes. But um, I think what's fascinating about that is that you then went from there to Milton Keynes as uh, the director of music education for the Milton Keynes area when it was a new town. I mean, first in its um, development stage. It was, um, absolutely, yes. Literally. And that was a very different type of, well, child, I guess, uh, and educational process. What, what would you say about that? Well, it's certainly true. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I think one could argue at one level that um, 
most kids are more alike than we like to admit to ourselves. Though, of course, if they've had a, you know, an opulent background, they're going to have opportunities that are denied to those who, who don't have it. Uh, I mean, the, the, the kids at Cranley were extremely affable. And some of my close friends now are people who I met then when they were in their teens who've remained friends of mine for you know, 50 years. Uh, I think it's also true that um, what is interesting is the way that if you're doing something in a new place, it's enormously easier because people are enthusiastic because you don't go to a new town unless you want a fresh start in some way. Obviously, some people wanting a fresh start want it from difficulties and, and deprivations or they've run away from abusive husbands or whatever it may be. But there is a sense of energy about a new town which makes it easier to get new things to happen. I mean, I, I'm absolutely clear that apart from the deep sadness to me, the fact that my orchestra that I founded, you know, the, the professional Milton Keynes Orchestra, uh, died uh, last year, um, it would be much more difficult to start it from scratch now if it had, it had not existed, because, you know, the, the, the town is 45 years old and the energy levels begin to fall after a certain... Maturity has many advantages, but it also reduces the amount of energy available. And I think I was very lucky to plug into Milton Keynes at exactly the time I did when there were, A, you know, enthusiasms abounding and also some money to make things happen. Yes. But you were also um, in that time that you were at Milton Keynes um, spreading the, the musical message, as it were, to a lot of children who would never have had those opportunities had they not been funded by... Um, the local authority to do so and um, in in times where this is becoming a very sort of threatened area of education that must look like a very golden era really. Oh I, I think it was completely a golden era and I think what is so scandalous is the way in which those opportunities have been being reduced almost continuously since the 1980s not absolutely continuously but you know the, to, to use the Covid thing you know the the peak was clearly in the 1970s, and it has been, with a few occasional you know, improvements, been going downwards almost ever since. And I think one of the greatest scandals of our time is that music is becoming a middle-class activity by and large, because most people who can't afford lessons won't get lessons. And it doesn't matter how much talent you have. If you don't have a teacher, it's very, very, very difficult, I think probably impossible, to learn to play an instrument. Well, never mind buying an instrument or oh, you know indeed. having the opportunity yeah, to, to yeah, practice it. No, and in some ways, it's actually sort of worse than yes. it was in the 1920s. You know, Malcolm Sargent was the the son of a guy who uh, uh, who worked in a uh, as a sort of clerk in, in in a colliery. He wasn't actually a miner, but he worked as a clerk, and he had very little money. And he found this marvelous spinster teacher who I think was paid something like a penny an hour to teach him. And because he was very talented. Um, he did extraordinarily well. A person like him now, I think, would just never get near it. I don't think we'd be anywhere near producing someone like that into the profession because he would have no opportunities to do it. No, no. And I think your father's in a similar place, don't you? Uh, yes, well, indeed, my father would never have got anywhere near it had it not been for um, a lucky strike with a, um, a very insightful village school teacher who thought this boy has some talent, sure. aged three. Yeah. Thinking about how you came into music, um, I mean, I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, do you come from a musical family? Yes. Uh, I mean, the ironic thing is the professional musician in my family was my grandfather, who, who sadly died 15 years before I was born. He was the last organist of the Foundling Hospital, where, of course, he had Handel's organ. 
and it was a big job. The Foundling Hospital was a was a famous place in the you know early part of the twentieth century. Had a very fine organ. Had a professional choir with the foundlings singing the top lines. Twenty boys on one side of the organ, twenty girls on the other. They never got with any further distance within each other's range, uh, but they were singing every day. They trained every day, and I think my grandfather. Uh, was a benevolent person. I, I met a couple of people who've been foundlings, fun enough, in the last couple of years that before the place closed and moved out of London. And uh, they all said, you know, in a rather harsh environment, and my goodness, it was very harsh. Uh, he was a you know a gentle and, and benevolent figure, so everyone wanted to sing in the choir if they could possibly pass the audition. That's fascinating that they had girls at that mm. stage. I mean, that's really very forward thinking. Yes, well, I think it was inevitable because, you know, obviously the foundlings divided without reference to gender into, crudely speaking, two halves in number terms. And I think if the boys had sung and the girls hadn't, um, they wouldn't have known quite what to do with them. Uh, and there's this wonderful picture of him at the organ. He had, they had professional men, I think 12, three altos, uh, four altos, four tenors, four basses. And then they had this huge group of 20 or possibly only 16 boys and girls either side of the organ, which stretched back in the gallery. And, uh, you know, they sang a lot of big music and, and to very high standard. Well, he uh, also, um, I think he wrote music, composed music, yes, didn't he, Henry? He did, yes, yes. He, uh, Henry David Wesson, your grandfather, because somebody anonymously sent me a copy of one of his pieces a year yes. or so ago. Yes. Um, so he must have been a published composer. Oh, he was a published composer. I, I think it's fair to say, you know, he wasn't a, a person who changed the course of musical history, um, but he was a very good craftsman. And of course, the thing about him was he was, you know, self, not actually self-taught, but he, he had no formal education in music. He did his Doctor of Music degree at Durham, you know, at a distance, as it were. And he had to submit this extraordinary big orchestral piece, which is part of doing the exercise, as the DMAS was called. I, I have it, you know, it's a very craftsmanly piece, and he must have worked at it, you know, in the small hours of the morning, having spent the evening teaching and things to keep body and soul together. So I'm, I, I'd love to have met him, and it's a great sadness to me that I, I never uh, did. But but having said that he passed on uh, 15 years before you arrived, uh, how was it then that your parents encouraged you into music? Well, um, uh, that's an interesting question, and it's it's not it's not as quite as two dimensional as that. My father learnt from his father, my grandfather, that whatever he wanted to be, it was not a musician, because <laughs> he experienced the life of a musician, and he uh, felt it was you know very socially destructive, and so he became a lawyer. Though he was a very very good, talented amateur keyboard player, he was an organ scholar at Brazenose in Oxford um, when when he was an undergraduate. He played the piano very beautifully. He went blind in, in, in the 1940s, my father, but he could still play Chopin ballads, you know, very, very beautifully by heart. And he had an obvious musical talent, but he he clearly decided that, in you know, in, in adolescence, he was not going to be a musician. And he used to quote to me regularly when I said I did want to be one, the phrase that his father had said to him, which is, you know, a musician is nothing but a donkey on a treadmill. <laughs> which was a phrase which had clearly registered with my father and, and stuck in his mind. It, it failed to register in mine, really. Yes. No, well, it clearly didn't put you off. So there you were, and you were learning um, the piano and the organ. Did you not start the organ very young? Uh, yes, I mean, I started the violin before I started the piano, actually. Do I think... I don't think you've ever admitted that to me. Oh, really? Oh, yes, I did. <laughs> I, I have to say that uh, two things. One is I was clearly very limited in ability, but without being too self-justificatory, I think my teacher was curiously inadequate. She was the she was the sister of my choir master, and I was a choir boy at St Margaret's in Putney, a church you know well. And uh, we had rather sweet choir master, who was I think perfectly competent. But he, he recommended his sister as my violin teacher, 
and I don't believe his recommendation was wholly objective. And she was a perfectly nice woman, but I mean, she was, I think she made a profession of boredom, really. And I, uh, and the only time I ever enjoyed playing the violin, I think literally over a whole period of two years, was when I was taught to do double stopping because it made a proper sound for a, a minute and a half before going back to this awful weedy noise again. <laughs> I, I do not doubt I wasn't a very diligent student, but I also think that she was staggeringly uninspiring. Well, I think if you got to double stopping, one could argue that you'd gone a little way into the empire of the violin. Oh, I think it was just desperation on her part to find something that she could, she occupied right. the lesson. Well, then anyway, you, so I gave then you, that up. Yeah, then you got into playing the organ, and that was obviously yes. um, a, a moment of yes. igniting some great passion yeah, for you. Because, it, it was, um, yes. Now, the organ was a very great excitement. I started when I was 13. And again, I lacked diligence in hindsight. You know, when I think of the way I tell my children to practice, and sort of you know, bully them when they don't. And I think how little I practiced. And when I did practice, it really consisted of playing the bits I could play rather than trying to play the bits I couldn't. Oh, dear. Uh, you know, a, a thing you may have come across in your extended teaching career. Well, um, I try to avoid it. <laughs> yes, I bet. Uh, I, I know, but it, you know, there's something about the organ. I remember when Edward Heath got his uh, honorary fellowship from the Royal College of Organists, I was getting my associateship diploma. This was when I'd just come down from Oxford. And he made a rather good speech in which he said the great thing about the organ was it gives you this wonderful sense of power that being a politician so conspicuously fails to deliver. And um, I think that was quite a shrewd observation, actually. Right. So um, you were at Westminster and then you applied to go to the Royal College, which yes. you, uh, as I recall, you went there for a bit and then got sidetracked into going to Oxford. Yes, that's entirely right. I mean, it was it was a whole thing in hindsight. And a, a contemporary listener to this interview will not believe how these things worked in those days, but I'm not sure they were discernibly worse than they are now. I decided to leave school for a variety of personal reasons. And um, in order to get my father to agree to this, I had to persuade him I wanted to be a lawyer, which, as you will understand, made him feel much happier than my becoming a donkey on a treadmill. <laughs> <laughs> and by the time I came to leave, I was absolutely clear that being a lawyer was the last possible thing I wanted to be. And God bless my father. When I said to him, I really must be a musician, Dad, and there were multiple reasons for that, not just vocation. Um, I wanted to stay in London for a whole raft of reasons, and I couldn't see any reason for not doing so. He said, well, you better try and get into the Royal College. And in those days, all that meant was I wrote a letter to the college, and the principal, Sir Ernest Bullock, wrote back saying, would I like to come to play to him on March the 4th? So I went to Plato on March the 4th, and he said, oh, well, that's all right, then you better start in April. And that was, the, that, as I remember it, that's almost entirely the application process. And you started in April. Well, even I started that in, in April. Is, yeah, is, nowadays, is wholly enough. impossible. And, uh, you know, I, I, I had the, the organist's first study with the great George Stalban Ball, the greatest organist of his generation. Like many very talented musicians, he wasn't a terrific teacher. You'll have come across this because he had never had a difficulty. Mm. And therefore, he couldn't quite understand why I had some. Uh, I remember taking the wonderful piece by Messiaen called Dieu parmi nous, which is one of the great sort of French toccatas in the in the 20th century. And uh, it's rather difficult. It has quite a lot of chords with five notes in each hand. And I was, to be blunt, struggling with this piece. And I took it to him and I said, you know, so I'm finding it's rather difficult. You know, what do you recommend? Oh, I think if you play it a little slower, you'll find it falls into place almost immediately. <laughs> well, it would have done for him. But I think for most people, it takes a bit more than that. And he didn't have a method. He didn't say, well, you know, use, use the right hand and pedal. Why don't you put the thumb on this note? He just sort of waited for it to happen. Yeah. And he had such a fluency uh, that, you know, he would not have understood that some of us don't quite have that fluency and can't just read our way through very hard pieces of music. 
But then I, I suspect that's probably why you are a very gifted teacher is because you, you look at I'm things. such a bad player. Yes, well, I hate to I'm not sure I quite meant <laughs> No, I, I do think, I think you're right in the sense that I think you are a better teacher if you've had to solve some technical problems rather than discovering you don't have any. And I think that's undeniable. I think you have to, as a teacher, and you're a great teacher, so you know all this already, but I mean, I think we do have to try and put ourselves in our pupils' shoes, don't we? Yes. Well, you've got to so, find you know, the method by which they yes, can receive the yes, information rather precisely. than Precisely. The... And what is it exactly? What is the physical or psychological impediment that prevents them solving some problem? And if you've never had a problem, I think it's quite difficult to do that. I think, as, I mean, he, I mustn't, mustn't slag my old teacher off because he was extremely benign and kind to me. Yes. He was never bullying or unpleasant. But, you know, he was always so slightly baffled if I couldn't play a very complex piece more or less at once. And uh, that, I think, was perhaps not the most helpful apprenticeship I could have had in that circumstance. So after you'd been, been at the college for some period of time, but it wasn't more than a year, was it? I think. It was, no, well, it was, I mean, the, the key moment, which I'm, I just want to interpolate here, which is not in your question list, I'm sure, is how I came to conduct, because that happened before I went to Oxford, actually. Though my life changed completely when I studied with Bolt afterwards. Uh, in my, I was, my piano was my second study uh, for the first term, this odd summer term when I was first there. And I, I really wasn't enjoying that. You know, I, I just felt I was going around slightly in a circle and I wanted to focus on something else. So I, I went to see the registrar of the college, who was the number two in the hierarchy. And I said to him, and I didn't really want to go and do the piano. What else might I do? He said, oh, we're restarting the conducting class in September. You want to be a cathedralist. You need to know how to conduct. You should join that class. So I did. And that was the first time I'd ever even thought of the idea that I might ever conduct anything. And I'm bound to say the first time I picked a stick up, I thought, this is fun much less hard work than practicing, and I'm enjoying myself. And the honest truth is I've done that ever since. And uh, I remember the very first time I conducted, which was you know, the September after I'd gone to college. So I, I, I was still only 16. And um, it was the Franck D minor symphony, which I'd never even heard of, let alone adequately prepared. And I still waved my way through the last movement in what I could guess would be rather hopeful sort of way. And I, I really enjoyed it. And of course, the student orchestra were terribly nice to you because you were one of them and they weren't going to be difficult in the way you know, a professional orchestra might be if you were incompetent. And I, I remember coming off the platform thinking, gosh, this is an awfully nice idea. And so it proved. And that was presumably not taken by Bold. I mean, no, it was taken yeah. by someone you may have heard of called Harvey Phillips, who was quite a well-known oh, yes. cellist. Yes, yes, indeed. Right, so then after this um, baptism of fire into conducting, you then went off to Oxford, Brasenose, yes. and there you must have done some music there, presumably. Uh, I did well. read music. I must say I was an undistinguished student, uh, and uh, I'm bound to say also that I found the course quite startlingly boring. And uh, I have to say this hasn't changed much between then and now, because you probably know I went you know, I went back there to pretend to be a Don for three years, uh, a couple of years ago, and... Um, I was amazed to find how little it had really changed. I mean, it's obviously changed, but I think that the trouble with both Oxford and Cambridge is that in their perfectly understandable pursuit of academic excellence, they don't always ask themselves the question, what is it that our students need to learn to make their way in the world? Right. And I think five-part Palestrina counterpoint has its uses if you're going to be a very serious composer but I don't think its use for every student is as great as all of that. No, so not, not much of the practical then? There was no practical examination at all when I was there. You couldn't, you couldn't do it. Now you can opt for a, one, a, a single you know, paper of practical performance, but in those days you couldn't do it at all. So at the end of three years, that was 
time to go back to the college. And... No, 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 no. At the end of three years, I got married to my first wife. <laughs> well, that's one way of deferring your career, I suppose. Yes, yes. and uh, she was a year behind me at Oxford, so I had to find an excuse for staying there. So I decided to do a dip head. And the, the Department of Education in Oxford didn't believe that music was a subject. Right. So I wasn't allowed to do it. So I had to do my dip head in, uh, in, in English, which is actually much nicer because you know, kids are much more interested to be taught English than taught music. And I had a lot of fun doing it. And I did offer music as well. And when I went to the Edwards School in Oxford as my teaching practice term, they actually did ask me to teach quite a lot of music as well as quite a lot of English. So I had a rather jolly time. And I made a living to you know, support my student um, wife by teaching at a prep school outside Oxford, where I was effectively director of music. I would have been far too grand a title for a prep school of 110 students in it. But I learned a lot about teaching you know, in a very sort of basic way. So then where did the Bolt connection come in? Well, that came in March of that year, in this fourth year that I was in Oxford doing this dip ed. It was actually while I was doing my teaching practice term at St. Edward's. Um, I was wandering around Oxford uh, with my wife, and uh, I saw, in what was then called the New Theatre, I think it's now called the Apollo Theatre, Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, Sir Adrian Bolt from Spall. And I had met Bolt because he was at Westminster and he came to talk to the sort of young Westminster musicians about life. And to be honest, I'd find him profoundly boring. He wasn't very good at talking to adolescent boys. He didn't have much interest in it, I would guess. Uh, But I thought, well, I'm like conducting. I've been going to the Canford Summer School, you know, to to do conducting during the summer vacations. And so I was doing quite a lot of conducting at Oxford. I mean, I conducted my second term, my second year, I conducted 17 concerts in a term. God knows how bad they were. But luckily, I have no record of that. But it was a very useful experience. But I, I saw this, and it was a Sunday afternoon. I think I was probably playing an evening service in Oxford, so we you know, couldn't go back to our house outside Oxford. So we decided to go. And I went with my nose slightly in the air. You know, I mean, Bolt was great, but, of course, passed it at this age sort of thing, you know, very much the same age I am now as it happened. <laughs> and uh, I, what, the first piece was the Shropshire Lad Rhapsody of Butterworth, which I'd never even heard of. You know, I got a degree in music from Oxford University, but I'd never heard of Butterworth. And of course, I was, you know, that's a fantastic piece. Many of your listeners will know it. And if not, there's a very nice recording with the London Mozart players, which I recommend to them. Uh, and that's a wonderful piece. And he, he'd done the first performance. He knew it inside out. And it was a staggering performance. I nearly sort of, you know, overexcited myself. <laughs> and then there was the Schumann Piano Concerto with Moore Olympany playing. And she was very flexible, if that's a rather polite way of putting it, flexible about tempo. And he never was a demi-semi-quaver away from her. Without any fuss or flather, he was just stuck to her like glue all the way through. It's a hard concerto to accompany, as I'm sure you know. And then it was Brahms IV, and of course I did not know that he'd studied Brahms IV with Richter, who apparently did the first performance. But in any case, uh, you know, I knew Brahms IV. I never conducted it, of course, very, very wisely. Didn't, not in my most arrogant adolescence that I think I could do Brahms. But I was just stunned by the performance, because he conducted with this very economical method, until the big climax came at the end of the last moment when his arm went over his shoulder for the only time in the evening. And I thought the roof was going to be blown off by the amount of sound he generated. And I suddenly thought to myself, I don't know anything about conducting at all. You know, this guy is in a world I don't even you know, begin to comprehend so much better as he than I am. And it was good for me that. It was a very good moment because I thought, like all, you know, with the arrogance of youth, I thought I'd learned a lot about conducting at Oxford. But I realised I'd learned extremely little when you take the sort of scheme of things. And so I wrote a note to him saying how wonderful it had all been. Could I please come and study with him? And I gave it to the porter at the Randolph Hotel in Oxford to put under his door, which he did. I mean, nowadays, they probably would just have to go away, wouldn't they? But anyway, the porter did his stuff in a Shakespearean way. And Bolt 
got the postcard and replied to it in his own handwriting the day after, saying, I'm going back to the Royal College to take the class over there. Why don't you join it? And again, without filling in lots of forms and things, I just sort of sent that letter to the college saying, could I join the class? And they wrote back saying yes. Extraordinary. And, it is um, extraordinary, yeah. I mean, uh, not only could that not happen now, but it's it's rather amazing to think of Bolt taking a class at the college, actually. Um, well, he'd taken a very famous class in the 20s, of course. He, you know, in the 1920s, when he was a young conductor, he was the star teacher in London. And people used to queue up, including Michael Tippett, incidentally, to study with him at the college. And he wrote a book for his students, literally for his students, called A Handbook of Conducting, which is sort of, you know, 100 pages of the basics, which he issued free to his students and then published. Right. And in what way do you think his teaching was sort of, you know, seminal, uh, just clearly influential on you? Um, I mean, oh, I would say of... I would use the word Damascene, I think, which I'm sure everyone immediately understands. I mean, it was it was like having a light shined in my face on the road to Damascus. I mean, I, I suddenly had a completely different understanding of what the conductor's function really had to be. And the amount, the depth of knowledge you had to have of the school and um, his his technique, of course, is not everyone's technique. You don't have to adopt this rather mm, sort of controlled technique that Bolt had if you don't want to. Though I think people who sort of heave around like an oak tree in a, a gale probably don't get better results by doing so, however good their musicianship may be. But he he had three things. One, he made one understand that the degree of concentration is absolutely critical that if you are not 100% focused on what you're doing the players won't be the second thing was that he always made it clear to you that if you didn't know the score extremely well you should not be wasting the musicians time standing in front of them and the final thing was you shouldn't make any gesture that hasn't got a purpose to help the musicians not a gesture for the audience not a gesture for yourself but a gesture which is going to be helpful I mean, it's interesting because this wonderfully self-contained um, and, and quintessentially sort of English image that he has, um, and you mentioned that he'd introduced you to the Butterworth, is that where your kind of interest in English music comes from? Oh, yes, it comes directly from him. Uh, I, mean, I, I mean, I like some English pieces and not others. I, I've always loved the Enigma variations, actually, but I mean, he, he opened a, a door to a whole raft of repertoire that I'd uh, never even heard of. And, you know, I conducted Paris Job um, in my middle 20s, which I would not even have looked at without his encouragement. Uh, and it's a very fine piece. And I'm just slightly sad we don't see a bit more of it. Well, I mean, you say that, but you've done more than your fair share of um, English repertoire and, and bringing a lot of it to the attention of audiences um, very effectively also through your recordings with the Holst Singers, which of course you founded, um, and Milton Keynes City Orchestra, and indeed the London Philharmonic, which you recorded uh, the planets with. Yes, and, indeed. Yes, that's true. And indeed the Enigma Variations. Um, yes, that's I also true. I wanted to ask you a bit about the time that you were Director of Music at St Paul's Girls' School, which which famously has had a succession of very well-known music directors, going back, I think, as far as Vaughan Williams. Was he not? Uh, Holst, before Holst him. is earlier, right. So Holst, yep. Vaughan yes. Williams, Herbert Holst, Howell. I think, became director of music in... nine. I'm this, I'm, this is off the top of my head. I am not looking at my reference books. I think about 1906, 1907, something like that. Only about four years after the school had opened. God. And he stayed there till he died in 1934. He wrote the most affecting letter to the high mistress, as she's called at that school, saying when he was about to have his operation, uh, which, from which he died, didn't recover properly from, 
saying, you know, I really, I really ought to resign, but I cannot bring myself to, which was a very lovely thing to write to a school, you know, head teacher when you've actually grown well past the school in terms of your own reputation. Yeah. And he was clearly hugely attached to it. And his daughter would say that he's, his compositional energies were diluted by the fact he loved teaching and did too much of it. And that's obviously a matter of opinion. I think what is undeniable is that his enthusiasm and extraordinary ability to write for three or four part female voices did come directly from going into St. Paul's every week, you know, working with choirs there and getting very used to this high voice sound, which was particularly the thing he best controlled. I mean, I think his music for, for sopranos and altos is probably the greatest examples of its genre. And, you know, even in the planets, of course, he introduces this high voice chorus, which no one had done, I think, quite in that same way before. And I don't doubt that that did come out of listening to a lot of it being sung when he was in the school. And did you discover uh, any new music while you were at St Paul's? I oh, yes, know. huge amounts. Yes. I mean, the school had a library of Holst's music. Not much, I mean, they had one or two manuscripts, but most of it actually was published, but, you know, published but long lost kind of stuff, you know. And, and I, I did come across a lot of music by Holst that I didn't know existed. And, of course, I got to know Imogen, and she put me in the way of other pieces. Uh, so I got to be familiar with those, too. And I have to say that, you know, I think he is one of the, still one of the least well-recognised um, achievements of, of the English musical renaissance, second musical renaissance of the 20th century. I mean, I think he's a more original composer than Vaughan Williams, though not necessarily a, a better one. But, I mean, when you look at Holst's, sort of curiosity, harmonic curiosity, the way he, he was writing whole tone scales, for example, when most uh, typical English cathedral organists, you know, would have thought the dominant seventh was a, you know, rather ambitious, uh, uh, is, is, is extraordinary because it didn't come from anybody else. It, it came only from him. And I think Britain not only would have, but actually did say that Holst was the most powerful formative influence on his career. Uh, in terms of sound world, he certainly, he loved Holst's music. And I think things like the Hymn of Jesus, which is almost never done nowadays because it's rather difficult and, and it's not a powerful box office piece. It's a great, great masterpiece. And it has things in it that nobody else ever thought of uh, and which we should be doing it much more often. But, you know, we live in times when, unfortunately, we do a smaller and smaller repertoire uh, uh, to the same audience rather than expanding the audience by expanding the repertoire. Well, it's interesting that um, you seem to have imparted your, your love of Holst to your family because um, our son with his choir, the Godwin Choir, her recorded um, previously unrecorded Holst stuff Yes, um, only within the last two years. So arguably you've passed the torch on very effectively there. Well, I, I don't I, yes, should, I, I think you and I would agree that a parent should never actually to, to over-direct their children's interests, but I think he came to it. Um, by just doing it. And I think actually the people who sing Holst's music and experience it from the inside very soon become converts. I mean, you know, the Holst singers were called the Holst singers because we rehearsed in the Holst room, not because we were necessarily going to do a great deal of Holst. But the singers themselves, who were you know, young graduates, all, all of them at that time, who came down from universities and wanted to sing in London, um, when, they, when, when they gathered themselves together, they were very happy to explore some of this repertoire. And the more they did it, the more they wanted of it, which was, I think, very interesting. And there was real enthusiasm in the choir for this quite esoteric repertoire, which yes. I'm rather proud of, actually. There are people who love this music, but it doesn't get a really decent crack of the whip, even now from BBC 
or from promoters because they're frightened of not having a big enough audience. And this is a very dangerous, it's a cart and a horse argument, isn't it? Well, indeed. Um, I mean, I was thinking about also the, the, the sort of English symphonic repertoire that you explored, the Sterndale Bennett, mm. the um, Cipriani Potter, um, both, I think, related to the Royal Academy of Music. Yes. Um, and... and the lovely Mr. Crotch, never to be <laughs> overlooked. Yes, well, indeed, and and but those those are, are very important um, and valuable kind of um, discoveries in the in the English music firmament because they're they're sadly rather overlooked. I mean, I think Sterndale Bennett is a marvelous composer because he's got a sort of Mendelssohn like gift for for melody, but with a little bit of a twist of originality in there to to make it just his very own, really. Um, I think you're completely right. I mean, I think what is interesting about this is that these people were much better thought of in Europe than in England at the time they were writing music. I mean, Mendelssohn did say that he thought Sterndale Bennett was one of the greatest composers of his generation. And Mendelssohn was a nice man, but he wouldn't have made that up. No. And in the same way, Cipriani Potter studied with Beethoven, one of Beethoven's very few pupils, because I think he was a pretty irascible teacher. And Beethoven was reasonably complimentary about him. And the fact that these people have completely faded from our own national consciousness is, is really rather a shame, I think. And, of course, the best of all those people probably is Samuel Wesley, not the Samuel Sebastian Wesley, whose church music people know, but Samuel Wesley, his, his father, um, wrote symphonies in, in the sort of Haydn-esque style, which are, again, very fine. I mean, poor old Wesley had a difficulty because he fell into a hole in the road in the dark when he was 23 and sustained a very serious injury, which manifestly changed his personality. But luckily, he began an affair with his housekeeper when he was in his 30s, and she kind of rebuilt his confidence and esteem of himself. And his, his last symphony, which is very much uh, the response to hearing Haydn conduct in London, is, I think, a very great piece. And I, I think it's true that the recording, which you can no longer get, alas, which I made in Milton Keynes, is the only recording of that piece currently available, which is a terrible shame. Yes, well, indeed, unexplored little gems of the repertoire. So um, amongst all of that, uh, what do you like to do when you're not conducting? Well, I, I, I used to in, hugely love playing tennis, um, but uh, since I broke my hip five years ago, I'm a little bit more cautious on the tennis court. I, do have, I have played since having had a new hip installed, but one's a little bit more cautious, and I think caution is not a great quality on the tennis court. But I do play table tennis with my... Uh, 15-year-old daughter who's very good at it and unfortunately beat me only two days ago for the first time, which is always a, a milestone of personal decline. You know, you oh, may God. remember when our Her son... Her life will be misery for yeah, the week yeah. then. <laughs> uh, you, you may remember our son doing much the same thing at much the same stage of his career. You know, and I'm glad to say I can still beat him on a good day, you know, but I can, yes. no, I can no longer guarantee it at all. And I think it's very good for parents to discover their children can do something as well, as well and indeed better than they can. Uh, but I, I do love, I love, I like ball games and I, I enjoy that. And um, I, I also have developed a, a new enthusiasm, I think, for Tudor history. Um, it, it, it does predate Wolf Hall, but I mean, obviously, the Hilary Mantel novels have become compulsory reading. Yes. And, you know, A Man for All Seasons is a play I can more or less quote by heart. And I, I think those things help. But, you know, music, you know, this is better than I do, really. Else, you know, music's a very consuming business, isn't it? Well, it's, it's think, more than a it's more than a job and it's more than it a, an a yeah. enthusiasm. It's a, it's it a kind takes of... over very large amounts of your life. And I yeah. think that it's... Um, 
I think we all need to have something else. I think anyone who has only one club to play with gets into trouble if they find a long hole, to use a golfing metaphor. But I think that it, it is inevitable if you're driven by a very powerful love of music and, and your profession. I think it's the difference between the amateur and the professional, isn't it? That amateurs love music. Some of them love it very deeply. But it's not very likely to take over their life in quite the same way because, you know, it simply isn't practical. Whereas for us, it becomes a way of life. And if you're deprived of your performances because they're no longer possible, because you know, there's an appalling epidemic in your country. Yes. It's like having a limb amputated in a way, isn't it? Yes. You know, you, 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 the, the business of performing, preparing, getting, taking all that effort to get something ready and then sharing it with people who hopefully will like what you're sharing with them. It is is not unlike a drug, and if you have a complete withdrawal from it, it's quite damaging. Yes, that is very thought provoking stuff. I have to say that um, I think uh, you have also had a very powerful social conscience all the time that I've known you. And one of the things that most people probably don't know about you is that you you have been a prison visitor, for example. Yes, I have been a prison visitor. Yes, that's quite right. Uh, I do think that you can measure a society by the way it deals with this very complex issue of crime and punishment. And in parallel with this appalling decline in the commitment of the state to enable all children to have access to musical instruments, is a similar decline in a determination to try to reform criminals by treating them in a humane way in a prison and seeking to divert them from a life of crime, particularly young criminals, of course, who in this country tend to go in and out of prison uh, like a revolving door. And I'm afraid that just as I think music education has been in decline for the last 30 years, there's no doubt at all that generally speaking, though there are one or two very special prisons in this country, most of them are getting less and less uh, humane, less and less likely to cause reform to take place because of this endless driver of trying to get things as cheap as possible. And the trouble with things being as cheap as possible is you don't get the best by looking for you know, the cost of everything and the value of nothing. No. Well, I mean, in particular, I know that you were um, a visitor at uh, a very high security therapeutic prison. I think it yeah. was in an area. Gren Grenton Underwood, yes, fantastic prison, absolutely astonishing, and achieved wonderful things. And I, I mem remember linking it to my musical enthusiasm by taking uh, the joint orchestra of St Paul's School and St Paul's Girls School to play there to the prisoners on a Sunday afternoon. The warders weren't very keen because it meant they had to do more work. But the prisoners stood for Vanya Milanova, who was playing the first movement of the Beethoven violin concerto, this wonderful Bulgarian violinist. And she was clearly very powerfully touched by the circumstances of seeing all these people who were in, you know, in, in prison. And she played her socks off. I've never, she was a wonderful violinist. I never heard her play better than she did that afternoon. And spontaneously, the end, completely spontaneously, the prisoners leapt to their feet to applaud it. And I thought to have a group of prisoners applauding a performance of the first movement of Beethoven Marlin's Concerto really did say something both about the nature of prison and the nature of music. And that's one of the greatest moments of my career. I, I remember it extremely vividly. And she was, uh, you know, she was very good of her to do it. But it just shows that the power of music to get to people, even people who've had pretty battered lives, is, is almost unlimited. And if prisons were doing that kind of thing more now, rather than not at all, which is the general rule, they would be better places in which to reform people. Yes. Hilary, tell us about your connection with the military wives, because they've obviously uh, shot to fame, in particular in the light of the recent film that's come out about them. But you have a, a relationship with, with the choir. Well, indeed, I, I am the artistic director of the 
national organization now, which is a, a huge privilege. I, I first made a Christmas record with them in, in 2016, and it was an extraordinary experience. We would gather 230 or 40 together, and each of these large groups would sing one piece that was their piece, and then they would sing two or three pieces which were for the entire network to sing. So on the disc, there are 2,400 people singing in three of the pieces, which is extraordinary. It's a feat of engineering as well, of course, but it is amazing. And what I find extraordinary about them is that for them, singing is, is not just something they do, you know, of one evening a week as a hobby. It's a kind of emotional driver in the most remarkable way. And the fervor with which they sing is, of course, obvious to an audience. And I thought it couldn't possibly be equally obvious on a disc, but actually it is. I've played these discs to people without making any comment. And they all say that the passion with which these people sing is extraordinary because there's, of course, no audition. The choir is entirely open access. Anyone who is a military wife or a military mother or a military daughter can join. And it provides a huge emotional support pattern for those whose loved ones may well be in harm's way. But it's not actually at the price of producing not very good music making because they sing with such energy and commitment that the music is, comes to life rather splendidly. We have um, a big tour coming, which was meant to be in the autumn and needless to say has been cancelled, but it's now been postponed to March and I hope that we will be up and running again by March. We're going to some of the major cities in the country. And if your listeners want a, a sort of a, a bit of what they do, They've issued a recording of the soundtrack of the film, which is, I think, going to be a great success. It's a lovely film. And though they don't occupy every single track of this disc, they have about half of it. And uh, I think it would be of great interest. So do you think there's anything left for you to want to achieve uh, oh, oh, professionally? Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, certainly. Come on, then. Give, us, yes, give yes. us a list. <laughs> yes, no, I've got, I have a whole raft of pieces I have to do before I die. And that's one of the reasons I'm rather cross at losing. I'm sorry, more. I wasn't suggesting that it was imminent. <laughs> oh, well, no, who can say? But I mean, what I am clear about is, you know, one can't, you, you know, the famous Pierre Monteur story when he was conductor of the LSO, which I think he was appointed to in his late 70s. And uh, he had a three-year contract. And Anthony Camden, who you'll remember well, Yes. was the chairman of the orchestra. And after the three years was up, or it might have been four, doesn't really matter. It had been hugely successful, fantastic critical acclaim and so forth with the LSO. And he went to see the maestro and he said, uh, Maestro, we've had such a success. You know, we, we long to have a bit more of it. Would you be at all prepared to do perhaps one or two more years with us? To which Monteux replied, absolutely not. So Camden, who was a politically effective guy, was all taken aback by this. So why not, Maestro? He said, 10 years or nothing. Oh. <laughs> and so they gave him a 10-year contract. He didn't quite fulfil all of it, I'm afraid. But, you know, it's, isn't it a nice idea? Yes. So excellent. I feel I've got about another 10 years. I, mean, I may not get to the end of the contract, but I'm aiming at another 10 years of performance and then calling it a day. And certainly among the things I very much want to do is, you know, to do some serious performances of, of the First Symphony of Elgar, which is a piece I've, I did with the National Children's Orchestra to my amazement. They played it wonderfully. I didn't choose it. It was chosen by the music director and I was very nervous about it, but actually they got it. It was astonishing that these 14-year-old kids could play it. But I've also wanted to do more performances of The Kingdom and I'm hoping we may have a chance to record The Kingdom with the CLC sometime before I hang up my baton. The Kingdom is Elgar's greatest piece, I think. And Bolt thought that and Elgar thought that. So who's going to argue with us? Not many. We should clarify CLC stands for City of London Choir. Which oh, is, indeed it does, um, yes, yes. The choir yes. that you continue to, to conduct. And, I, yep. and I, for the benefit of the, the Rye listeners for this podcast, I should point out that the City of London Choir 
under the baton of uh, Hilary Davin Wetton, um, performed in the 2018 uh, Rye Festival. Didn't we do the Du Riffle Requiem? The Du Riffle Requiem. Marvellous piece. And your audience yes. were lovely, Alison. I remember it well. It's, isn't they that a glorious lovely. church? It's such a glorious church to make music in too, I think. It is. Um, not easy ergonomically. I remember the organ had to be somehow, yes. we had to move yeah. you slightly to get yes. so you could no, see. The, the, organ is, the organ is a difficulty because it's a long, long way away. But it, yes. it, we managed to make it work, as I recall. You know, oh, and what I and absolutely remember is that extraordinary atmosphere that comes from that magnificent crossing. And you know, as you walk into the building, that huge thing in the middle. Uh, the, and I think that it's a, it's an extraordinary. I mean, it's a, there's something genuinely mystical, isn't there? But you don't have to be a religious person or otherwise. Just think to yourself: people have been singing in this building for a thousand years. Yes. And that's a very strange and marvellous feeling. And however good the Barbican may be, it doesn't quite have that feeling. No, 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 nor is it just beautiful, I have to say. No, 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 not quite. <laughs>